Welcome to the Productivity Show by Asian Efficiency, helping you do more and be better. And now here's your host, Zachary Sexton. I wanted to to read the beginning of your book because I sure. really, I just like, it's so strong. Uh, and it goes, everybody is busier now than before. We know it, we say it, we feel it, and most of us seem to believe it. And yet there's no sign of slowing down. In fact, Everything seems to be whirring past us in a blur. The demise of family dinners, constant multitasking, late-night catch-up for work and school, never-ending list of things to get done, all vie for our attention. And yet, no matter how many gadgets we have, even the cool new ones that Google comes out with only in Silicon Valley, (laughs) uh, and no matter how synced we are, we are perpetually looking for a better way to organize ourselves and even be more Efficient. So this is the preface to the CEO of Self, an executive functioning workbook by my good lifelong family friend, Jan Johnson. That's right. The first question that I wanted to ask you, which is something I think I barely knew the definition before I read your book. And now that I've read your book, it makes a lot of sense. I think that's something that with the Productivity Show and Asian Efficiency we basically help people do, which is executive functioning. Exactly. Can you explain that definition? Sure. So executive functioning is a, uh, a term that's used to define a sort of a loose grouping of skill sets that um, are commanded, if you will, by the free prefrontal cortex or the, the frontal lobe of your brain. And these skills are what oftentimes are defined as making us human. The ability to problem solve, the ability to plan ahead, the ability to organize, to sort. And this skill set uh, is not fully functioned in humans until at least the age 25. Impulse control is also part of that. Uh, And yet they're uh, really needed, especially in teenage years in school. Um, There's a reason I like to say why uh, insurance companies won't rent a car to a kid who's 25 or or under 25. And it's because they understand that impulse control, problem solving aren't fully functioned. So executive functioning then again is the, the group of skills that allow us to organize and kind of make sense out of our lives. Nice. And you help people with another term I just learned recently that run on different ends of the neurological spectrum. Mm -hmm. So you and I can basically take care of ourselves, uh, go out and and cook food before we're hungry, uh, make it on time to most appointments. Mm -hmm. Although it wasn't always this way, probably. (laughs) Now that you pinpoint, 25, 26 was about the year for me that I started getting a lot better at it. Uh, Also, as as listeners may know, uh, reading the book, Getting Things Done, uh, and starting to write things down and not keep them in my brain put them into a trusted system, also really helped me out yep. a lot. Yep. Uh, but you work more with people on the other end of the spectrum that are uh, what you call neurodiverse. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the term neurodiversity has been around now for, gosh, maybe 15 years. 
And I like the term a lot because it it really, I think, captures the fact that we're all wired a little bit differently and everybody's on a spectrum, right? Some people are super, super efficient. Everybody's known them. They're sort of the Martha Stewart's of the executive functioning world. You know, they're the people who never forget anything, always on time. Their lives seem to run very smoothly. Then we've known people who are always late. They always lose their keys. They can't find anything. So these are people with more impaired executive functioning. And the executive functioning piece uh, can be a symptom of several, several different types of neurodiversity. So it can be a symptom of ADHD, for example. It can be a symptom of Asperger's syndrome or high-functioning autism. It can also be a symptom of nonverbal learning disability and other types of learning disabilities. It can also be a symptom of depression and anxiety because depression and anxiety vie for uh, resources, if you will, in your CPU, making it difficult for you to have good executive functioning. So when we talk about neurodiversity, we're talking about people who are wired slightly differently with maybe a mood disorder, maybe with Asperger's syndrome or ADHD. And instead of worrying too much about the actual label, we're more looking at what is the impact to the client and helping them learn the skills they need to be more effective in their lives. And reading through this book, uh, the CEO of Self, an executive functioning workbook, and I finally get the, uh, the <laughs> pun that you, you made there. Uh, uh, a lot of these tactics, not a lot, almost every single one of these tactics are, are things that we talk about at Asian Efficiency and the Productivity Show that are just basic how to function better in life, how to right. function more efficiently in life, how to be more productive in life, how to have less stress and worry mm-hmm. in life, uh, writing things down, using a calendar, uh, keeping a, an organized space and environment so you don't feel so overwhelmed and hectic mm-hmm. about all the different things that need to be uh, sorted and organized and redone. Mm-hmm. Skills to get out of that place here, uh, one of them, your archaeological the archaeological dig to clean up a really messy room. Yeah, we should definitely touch on that. But these are all similar skills, and these are skills that people maybe on the different end of the neuro spectrum, of mm-hmm. the neurodiversity spectrum, need to have more focused attention on. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that we can't use these skills. Oh, everybody can. And that's the thing. You know, most of what I've learned about executive functioning, which I didn't know the term at the time, was from working in high tech here in Silicon Valley. So I was in business in the 80s, the 90s, and the early 2000s, and I went through the Covey programs, and I went through all of the management skill programs and learned how to make a decision, learned how to sort and organize my thoughts. I learned how to you know, figure out what a good priority schema is, and I learned how to be flexible you know, so that you know, my priorities as a manager in high tech may have changed 15 times in a day, right, in terms of what was most important. So I had to learn those skills myself. And then when I changed careers and started working with people who had impaired executive functioning, it was pretty simple for me to, to apply what I had learned to them. And oftentimes, you know, and I'm sure that this is, you know, you'll, you'll agree, oftentimes what this is, is instituting habit, right? It's learning a set of skills. How do you do this? And then how do I make it part of my daily routine? Because it's when it becomes something you don't think about anymore, that's when your life really starts humming, right? When you have to struggle to find your keys or you have to struggle to remember to do something, 
that means it's not working yet. So case in point, um, you know, I like to sometimes practice what I preach. And <laughs> I bought a new purse. I was so excited because it had all these pockets. And one of the problems I always struggle with is where the heck did I put my car keys, right? And I had had a purse before that was one great big bag. And I was I was digging around for my car keys. So the thought was that I had these pockets on the outside. My car keys would go in. But I wasn't in the habit. So what was I doing? Every night after work, I'm sitting there with my purse on the hood of my car, searching for my car keys, which was ridiculous. So that evening when I came home, I sat down with my purse, with my car keys. And I said to myself, practicing mindfulness, this is where my car keys go. And I took them out and I put them in the pocket. I take them out again and say to myself, this is where my car keys go. I did that 15 times. The car keys are always in that pocket now. So I had to establish the habit and I had to tell myself, this is what you're going to do now to make your life easier because otherwise I wasn't going to do it. I had to set myself up mindfully, practice it and build the habit. And now almost always they're in that pocket. I love it. And being on a, a road trip right now, I think I'm day 26 <laughs> into a almost 40 day road trip that, uh, that I'm going on this summer. Very early on, there was some friction. It was like, well, where do we put this thing? Where does this this thing go? Actually, on day two, bought a car topper. It was like, well, we <laughs> should have done that to begin with. <laughs> we, we have more stuff than we thought we did. I'm a notorious underbuyer. I don't buy things until I absolutely have to, but an overpacker apparently. Mm-hmm. And one day I'll learn how to actually pack for big trips like this. I don't need seven pairs of t-shirts and four sweaters but i have them and when they all need a place that's right it it was probably about day six or seven when we finally got in the flow of okay uh the car keys go here this goes there uh when we get into the car i actually that was a trigger for my habit to start journaling but uh nikita who's typically the driver because she's better at it, also because uh, she gets a little car sick, uh, was bored because she's like, well, Zach's just journaling. I don't have anything to do. So the next part of the habit was, okay, play music, then journal. So all of those things took some time to get going. And these are things that are very easy to set up in your home and natural environment. But a lot of times when you're traveling, it can be more difficult to, to maintain those. But if you have those simple ones, keys go into purse. I, I mean... If you're looking for your keys three or four times a week for 10 minutes, a half hour a week, I mean, that really, that time adds up. Well, and not only the time loss, which is huge, but the other part that I think is important too is the aggravation and the anxiety. Oh, yeah. Right? You know, because that, when we're stressed out like that, you know, the stress release, the cortisol into our system makes us cranky. It makes us inefficient. It blocks our ability to think clearly. Because we're now in stress mode. So it's really, you know, getting into, you know, not everything needs to be organized. But if you have the key things in your life organized, you know what you're going to do first, second, third, then you're just better prepared to deal with what life throws at you. Yeah, I would, uh, I would, I would totally agree. The, the same thing generally happens when you organize your, your time. So one of the things that you really... Um, focus on with with some of your clients is setting up a very very trusted calendar and other mm-hmm. time management techniques. Can you share some of those? Sure. One of the things uh, that we do a lot of is we see a lot of kids who uh, start college and then bomb. 
uh, and they either end up on academic probation, one or two, or they're actually thrown out of college, which is really sad. And one of the major reasons, and these are kids who may or may not have any challenges. They may or may not have ADHD, for example. But one of the things that we know is in high school, kids are in school from 8 in the morning until 3 p.m. After that, they come home, they have a snack, maybe they you know take a break, they sit, they do their homework, they eat dinner, they do more homework, they may game for a couple hours, they go to bed, they get up, do it again. So they're not learning how to manage their time at all. Everything is completely rigid and structured. Now when they go to college let's say their first class is from 10 to 11 and then they have a break until 2 p.m. on Mondays and Wednesdays. They have no idea how to manage their time. Nothing. And because they've been so highly regulated before and structured, oftentimes they're just going to goof off. They're going to go back to their dorm and play Skyrim. And who can blame them? You know? They're kind of looking forward to that. But then they, they don't know how to structure their time. They don't know how to be efficient. They don't know, for example, that... Uh, For most people, the best time to do math and transactional uh, work is in the morning when we're really fresh. And it's uh, so incoming information is much easier in the morning. It's much easier for most of us to write in the evening. Um, And not everybody's that way, but most people are. These kids don't know this, nor do they know how to structure their time. So one of the first things we do is we set them up with a Google Calendar. And I like Google because it's really easy for me to be on their calendar too. So they come in at the beginning of the quarter or the semester with their syllabi. We sit down, we put everything in Google Calendar, every one of their assignments, every one of their midterms, their finals, et cetera, and so forth. We figure out what their class schedule is. We put that in. We actually mark out times for them to study. So if they have that break between 11 and 3, what are they going to work on? It's early in the day. They have their biology class the next day. That's the time they should be doing working on their labs, for example. Then we talk about where are you going to be doing it. One of the worst things you can do is go back to your dorm to study. It's just too easy, right? It's too easy to get distracted. Your computer's there. Your music's there. God knows what else is there. So we need them to learn, where can I go that I'm not going to be distracted? Oftentimes, I like people to work where there's a little bit of distraction because some people uh, tend to go kind of dormant, if you will, if there's no outside stimulus. Mm -hmm. So sometimes even working in a relatively quiet Starbucks or working at a library where there's a little bit of hum and buzz actually help activate them and keep them on task. The other thing is, working in your dorm, it's really easy to kind of slip into Tumblr, right? Nobody's watching you. It's really simple to go do something you shouldn't be doing. Um, if you're at a library, even if you don't know anybody around you, there's sort of that guilt, you mm-hmm. know, that somebody could be walking by you and see that you're on Tumblr. So you're less likely to screw off, frankly, when you're in public. You're more likely when you're in your own dorm. So we help kids set up how to structure their time. We set up where they're going to be doing their work. We talk to them about their energy level throughout the day. We actually chart it. When are they at their peak? That's when they should be doing the transactional, the sciences and the math. When are they a little bit calmer and a little bit more um, mellow? That's when they should be doing their writing tasks usually. And then we track it over time and we see what's working, what's not working and tweak the system. That is... Awesome. I mean, it's it, it, a lot of the things. One of them, the um, oh, what was that name of the book? I love it. It is well, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, but it, it's the 
it's, it talks all about energy management. That was something I had never thought about before, when to work on certain tasks. And when reading it in your book, I found it really interesting that the, 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 the math and the reading is best in the morning and the writing is best in the evening. One thing that we always talk about is uh, eat that frog. It's mm-hmm, an idea mm-hmm. from Brian Tracy's book. Exactly. Uh, it originally came get from... Get the a, icky stuff over in the morning. Get That's Mark right. Get Twain quote. And for me, I had always thought of it. I was like, well, one of the more difficult tasks that I have is writing. And so I try to do that in the morning. I've scheduled that in the morning. Mm-hmm. It's still part of my regimen. Mm-hmm. But you've got me rethinking that. Maybe that's uh, would be a better time served to, to doing a little bit of research or, or something Well, like and that. there's no hard and fast. Everybody's different. You know, and, and like I say, you know, I, we have seen over time that most people do transactional best in the morning. Most people do writing in the evening. Mm-hmm. But that's, like I say, everybody is different. And so if your most icky task is writing, then eat the writing task in the morning yeah. and get it out of the way. <clears throat> people tend to, the reason why writing tends to be easier in the evening is your filters are down a little bit. You're less self-critical later Mm. in the day you tend to be it's a little bit easier to go into flow with more creative tasks flow and the whole concept of flow uh for transactional tasks like programming mathematics tends to be easier when your synapses are firing more rapidly when you are more critical when you can make those judgment calls faster in the morning in the evening you actually want your flow to be less critical and more smooth, right? You're doing less problem solving. You're letting information kind of flow from the back of your brain out forward. It's not problem solving. It's just words kind of streaming communication. Does that make sense? That does. That does. And that your actual explanation right there really helped me out even more. One of the first things that we started, we just jumped into this conversation as soon as I showed up at your house. Uh, because I've been having uh, Nikita do certain tasks for for me Mm -hmm. that I find very difficult. And the reason is because you need to uh, switch from thing to thing to thing very quickly. And that is not a strength of mine. And it is a strength of hers. So could you talk a little bit about multitasking and the spectrum of that and how... um, uh, basically how that works, because it's really interesting. It is interesting. So the, the truth is there is no such thing as multitasking, right? It Really what it is, it's the ability to jump quickly between um, task to task and to hold in your mind sort of uh, the thought that there, is, there are multiple things that you're trying to work on. So if we think about it, and it comes down to working memory, So working memory is essentially your desktop on your computer. If you can think about the desktop on your computer as your working memory. If you look at your desktop, there's a bunch of stuff there, right? And all of those... Don't tell me. (laughs) You should see mine. Mine needs cleaning too. Um, And there's a bunch of stuff there that we might need to, to access quickly, which is why we keep it on our desktop. It's not hidden in some folder somewhere. Our memory system is actually very similar. So our working memory is the, is the stuff that we need frequently, right? The long-term archive memory, which is when somebody asks you a question, this is how you know it's the long-term memory. It's fascinating. When somebody asks you a question and your eyes drift up to the left, typically you're searching your memory banks. You're remembering something. It's not something you know. So if I ask you, what's your phone number? You can rattle it off. 
If I ask you what your first phone number was when you were a kid, you'd have to go into the data banks. Your eyes go up to the right. You're actually scanning your brain for where is that information. You have to retrieve it from long-term storage, right? So working memory says you've got your phone number at the tip of your tongue, your current phone number. You know what that is. That lives because that's always an important piece of information, right? So that's like your desktop. So working memory is, or uh, being able to multitask is being able to swap things in quickly from your working memory. Now, working memory, your desktop on your computer, your virtual brain computer, um, some people have phenomenal working memory. It's a huge desktop. They can have all kinds of stuff that's rapid fire that they can pull up. Most of ours is much smaller. And we see people who have impairment in working memory. So we have to build scaffolds for them to, uh, to help grab that information more quickly. Um, one of the ways that we can tell how good or maybe not so good working memory is, is a, uh, what's known as an intelligence question, which is called digit span. And that is how many numbers can you remember and repeat back quickly and with fluidity? And you can usually tell somebody who has phenomenal working memory, which we know Nikita does, because she can memorize a whole string of numbers with no problem. Mm-hmm. Most of us are around five to seven, which, as we also talked about, which is why phone numbers are seven, seven numbers, seven digits. And actually, they're uh, seven digits minus the area code. Now, when people are adding in the area code and area codes change can even be different here in the Bay Area, they're talking about area codes have no location meaning anymore. Hmm. So now you're having to memorize 10 digits. That's really hard for people. Yeah. Right? I mean, seven was hard. Now up to 10, it's really hard. Growing up in Wyoming, it was easy. 307. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's the right. state. <laughs> but, well, and everything as, here in the Bay Area used to be 415, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, it was it really, it was helpful to me because it made that connection to, I've got a, a bad short-term memory, and I'm really bad at multitasking. Yep. And I now realize that it's the same thing that, well, one, there is no such thing as multitasking. Right. You're just switch tasking back back and forth exactly. and forth and forth. And that's the reason why I have difficulty with it. But I don't have as much difficulty hyper-focusing. Right. So if I'm interested in a task, I can just sit there and do it for hours. I actually set hourly reminders on my computer and phone. So I actually get up and, and take a break and right. do a stretch, drink right. some water get out of that state, actually notice the day go by. That mm-hmm. was that was something that people would be like, where did you go for the last That's five right. hours? Did you notice that there was like this huge thunderstorm <laughs> that came? Oh, really? I did. There was an earthquake. Wow, I didn't notice it. Well, and another thing that's really interesting about the difference between hyperfocus and um, multitasking, because they are absolutely opposite ends of the spectrum um, in terms of how our working memory works and how, how our brains work. There's a, there's a gender issue here, too, which is kind of interesting. Guys tend to be better at hyper-focus and flow, and women tend to be better at multitasking. Why do you think that is? Babies? That's right. So what do, and, and this is, you know, of course, this is gender bias to some degree, but biologically, women tend to be uh, wired to be able to do multiple things at once because they're cooking, they're watching children, they might be uh, keeping a house, they might be doing uh, uh, tending their garden, 
right? So in, in uh, ancient times, women were actually multitasking. They were much more social too, because they're taking care of all of these various things. So they had to learn how to switch tasks. I'm cooking the bread, but I also have to keep the baby away from the doorway. Um, I have to remember to go pick the cassava, but I also have to go get water later before, you know, the lions come to the watering den or whatever. So women had to keep track of many different things. So I think that there's a genetic predisposition based on gender. What were guys doing? Hunting. Get the saber tooth. (laughs) So they were hyper-focusing on watching and tracking, right? So they had to hyper-focus on that kill. That was their job. Do you think one or the other has... An advantage in the current world that we live in? I don't think so. I mean, I think really what it comes down to is you need to know what you're good at. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, you have to know your own weaknesses. You have to know your own strengths. Play to those. Play to your strengths. Scaffold the weaknesses. All of us are better at some stuff than others. And I think in today's world, obviously, um, you know, women need to be able to hyper-focus and men need to multitask, quote-unquote, right? So it's learning how to do that more effectively. But, you know, are we all going to be good at everything? No, that's okay. We don't need to be because, you know, thank goodness we have fabulous technology, right? We have alarms that can wake us up. You know, that's something that we use a lot with our clients too, you know, that when they go too deep. And it could be that, you know, they're taking a break. You know, they're taking a 15-minute break to play a game before they go back to their homework or whatever it is, but they have to stop at 15 minutes, right? So how do you do that? Well, for people who are into flow, they will not know how much time has elapsed. They don't sense uh, time in their body the way other people do, right? A lot of people, and I'm really good at this, for example, I can sit for any length of time, not any length, but for you know a decent period of time and tell you how long I've been doing a particular task with pretty good accuracy. That's a weird skill. And I didn't try to establish that or develop that. It's just something I have. I feel time in my body. I know about what, you know, how long something's taken me to do. So I can use that skill, but then there are other things that I'm not so good at. Um, forcing myself to do certain tasks that I really hate, for example, which is where I have to do the eat the frog, right? (laughs) I have to do those first thing in the morning. But in terms of developing the task, I think we can all learn to be better. But I don't think that there's one set of skills that's necessarily better than another. You just have to know what you're good at and scaffold the rest. What are some examples of some scaffolding that you would teach people who are on the end of the spectrum of of being having a little bit lesser with the multitasking with the multitasking piece what we tend to do is first off spend before even before you get into the office if you can or when you first get into the office is to take 10 minutes and to look at your calendar and not just look at it and forget it you know how sometimes you look at your watch and then you, you realize that you actually looked at it, but the time did not register. <laughs> you have no flipping idea what time it actually is, even though you know you just looked at your watch, right? So that's how people look at their calendars. You know, they look at it and go, Ugh. 
you know, okay, I got a bunch of stuff, but they don't actually think about what's going on. So we went, we have people look at their calendars. I want you to walk through everything mentally. All right. I've got, you know, 9am, I've got a meeting, my presentation's done. Great. It's on my laptop. It's ready to go. 10 o'clock. I have that uh, telephone call. Um, oh, did I get the, re- so I want you to actually think about each thing that's on your calendar. Number one, because that's the way that you kind of mentally prepare yourself, right? Then I want you to write down um, what's important to do today. And it could be a virtual list. Um, I use those soft post-its on my computer, and I just jot down what I have to get done by the end of the day, right? Um, it could be, you know, a notepad on your, ta- on your desk. That's fine, too. It doesn't matter how, but I want it out of your brain, and I want it on, you know, written down somewhere where you're going to see it, Right. So then you can start going through your day and you've got your reminders about what you need to be doing, right? And after every meeting or every phone call or whatever, look back at that list. Do you have time? If you can actually schedule those things, like let's say you have to call in a prescription refill, we'll put it on your calendar so that it actually reminds you to do something, right? So that's one way to do it. Now, when we're talking about multitasking for longer term projects, So um, I manage a lot of people. I've managed a lot of people in the past. Um, And one thing that always kind of drives people nuts is there's the tasks that are burning that you have to do right now. And then there are the longer term tasks that nobody ever gets to, right? It's like, oh, I just don't have time. Well, that's probably not true. You do have time. You're not setting aside time to actually work on those longer term projects that are important but not urgent, as Covey would say. So what you need to do is you need to block time on your calendar. If you went to go look at my my calendar right now on Wednesday morning from 8.30 until 11 every Wednesday is write and research. So that's my time that nobody can book a a meeting with me. Um, I typically don't answer phone calls. I might check email, but that's my time to do program development because I'm always writing, I'm always developing new curricula. So I have to have time to actually sit down and do it. And if I don't block that time consciously, I'm never gonna get to it, right? So it's being mindful, really, about how do I wanna use my time? And where in my calendar can I put things, right? We also, you know, and I encourage my employees to do the same. So it's important for managers to help encourage their people to do those long-term projects. The other thing they need to do is help their employees set boundaries, right? Um, A lot of our work is interrupt-driven. The phone rings, you know, a text message comes in, an email chimes, and we're Pavlovian. We react in the moment. We need to stop reacting. Right. Um, For those people who believe that their life is all that important, first off, your ego is probably a little too outsized for for reality. Um, There are some times when it really is important to be that connected. Uh, It's typically parents and their kids, honestly. So for that, you know, I will not pick up a phone call, even if, you know, on my cell phone, I have different ringtones for my kids. Right. So I know when my kids are calling. I doesn't, it doesn't mean I'm going to pick up the phone. So what do we have to do? If there's truly an emergency, the kids know they call once, let it ring a couple times, hang up, wait a second, call again. So if they call two times in a row, then I know it's an emergency, then I'll pick up the phone. 
So I've trained them, I've created a boundary, and I've trained them how to break that boundary if they need to. But managers need to do that with their employees. They need to respect those boundaries and stop throwing crap over the wall at them 24 by 7 if they ever want that long-term project done. And employees, individuals, need to learn how to set those boundaries and need to learn how to stop being reactive. Those are all hugely impactful on our executive functioning and hugely impactful in us getting, quote-unquote, real work done. That's great. Yeah, the uh, as, as far as setting boundaries and, and advocating for yourself on both ends of the spectrum, I've talked with a lot of people, a lot of managers who want to have that open door policy, so they're interrupted all day and they don't get anything done. And right. I, I always suggest to them, just like... I think I got this idea from college, probably. Mm-hmm. Office, office hours. hours. Exactly. <laughs> Set some office hours. Exactly. Then you, you can keep your door open, but they people know that, hey, this is the time that, that things can be addressed. Or using different communication methods. Uh, or, or explaining to them, hey, maybe write your things down when you have a question for me and come to me with five questions instead yep. of just one question. Yep. Same with the, uh, the employees. Sometimes they don't feel like they have the... The control are and they're in the space to really ask people to leave them alone. But I, I think if they come with a conversation, just, just saying, hey, I'd like to experiment with this. I, I, I want to try. I feel like I'm getting behind on this project and I could use some more focus time with this. Um, this this every Wednesday from 830 to 11 o'clock, I want to work on this project. Can I not be interrupted during this time? And, and I, I think the most nine times out of ten uh, that uh, you would get a positive response. Absolutely. And that one time out of ten, look for a new job. That's right. <laughs> well, and I think, and you're absolutely right. And in fact, when I was in high tech, what we would do is we had chunks of time where no meetings occurred, where people were not allowed to call each other. They could email, but they could not interrupt each other. You know, they had to, ha- you know, this is a dead time where people are actually supposed to be doing work. What mm-hmm. a concept. And in terms of the open door policy, you know, with regards to employers, it's also okay for employers to be a little bit like parents and say, now's not a good time. You know, is it a, could, you know, can you shoot me an email and I'll get back to it, you know, and, and explain to your employees, look, the door is open most times, but when I'm in flow or when I'm really hyper-focused on something and I got to get something done, I have to be able to say no, unless it's really urgent. And most employees are fine with that as long as they know that you'll get back to them, right? Mm-hmm. That's all they really care about. And so I think, um, you know, employers really need to teach their employees how to do this. They need to make it okay to let their employees work uninterrupted. It's really important. And if they're not able to do that, something's really broken, mm-hmm. really broken. Yeah. We are talking about that with your sons. Yes, exactly. Which is all internet driven. (laughs) Yeah. And that's just, so many offices are, and it's, it causes more stress. It, it, it reduces productivity. It's just generally not fun. Well, and this is the whole thing that I find fascinating because I've been in, you know, in and out of high tech for decades now, you know, back from when everybody had a hard walled office and then we went to cubicles and now the open floor plan Mm -hmm. and, you know, oh, it's so great for productivity and collaboration and this, that, the other thing. And I'm telling you, if you talk to people on those open floor plans, most of them would say, give me a flipping office where I can close the door, it's quiet, and I can focus. It's funny you mentioned that. I was just in Evernote's office. And they have that, it it seems like all tech and startups have that same open. And it's nice. People can come up and and, uh, and have impromptu collaboration. So I think that Mm -hmm. part of the open Mm -hmm. environment is good. 
but the person on our gin, the person who was giving us the little tour, was like, "Oh, it's great! Everyone can you know come and and talk to each other." <laughs> but then I look around. And I see everyone with headphones in. Right. Well, That's their door. Thank you. You know, it's like, I'm closing my door right now. Boop. Put my earplugs in. And upstairs, the top floor, which we weren't allowed to go to, it's like, well, that's where all the programmers are. We can't interrupt them. And it's like, well, yeah, because they got to focus. Right. So. And that's kind of crazy because, you know, more workers than just programmers need to focus. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, if you've ever been in HR, if you've ever been a manager and you need to have a difficult phone conversation... Where the heck are you going to have that? Mm -hmm. You know, you have to have privacy. So, I mean, I think I, I understand the collaborative um, effort, and I think that there is something to be said for that. But I think that between the uh, auditory distraction, the noise, you know, being able to um, screen that out, which you can do with headphones to some degree. The other thing that people are not able to do is visual distraction, mm. right? So if you are highly visually distracting uh, or distracted, you know, people walking by again, you know, that's another form of distraction. And again, it is the antithesis to focus. We need to have calm, you know, the le everybody's light level is a little bit different. What's optimum for them, uh, the temperature, sound, vision. And I'm not saying everybody needs a pod, but I think that companies would be very smart if they maybe... For most of the work, they had the collaborative open floor plan. But if they had more work pods where people could go, you know, they have their cone of silence where they could just hyper focus and get their work done. That'd be great with different light. Yeah. You know, like just guess. different. They could be smallish rooms, you know, something that where they could just go get their work done and then come back out into the real world, you know, when they're done with their program, you know, their project. That's great. There you go. Jan, one thing I did not tell you was coming at the end of every episode. Yes. I've asked three questions. Yes. So I think you'll be able to answer them all very well. It's about a book, a frog, and a tool. So a book is a book that you've read recently that you think might help our audience be a little bit more productive or whatever. Just a book you like. Uh, the resource and tool will help people be more productive. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe, you know, something like Evernote is something that's been mm -hmm. suggested a lot. Be able to write things down. And a frog. So we just talked about that. <laughs> a frog is a big project that you have. I know right. you just ate some frogs recently. I'm always eating uh, frogs. <laughs> but maybe we can hear about Very one more. Nice. And then we can uh, say how people can cool. connect with you, how people can uh, uh, get some of your, your more of your information or books if they feel like kids or themselves could use it. Got it. So, you know, difficult for me to pick one book. Um, anything by Malcolm Gladwell is fabulous. <laughs> I, love all, I love all of his books. Um, there's another, uh, there's another great book that, um, really opened my eyes to a whole series or a whole set of different way of thinking. And it's called reality is broken, uh, by, uh, McGonagall, who is a very famous game designer. It's on game theory and hmm. gamification, but really what it's about is behavioral economics, which is a fascinating topic. I don't know if you know anything about it. There's um, several books out. Uh, Carrots and Sticks by Ian Ayers is really interesting. Um, and this is basically how we as human beings set up our lives to be more productive by um, 
giving ourselves rewards and consequences, Mm -hmm. right? And it's fascinating because working especially a lot with teenagers and young adults, we got to be really creative on how we reward them and how we get them. So behavior economics, so anything by Gladwell, McGonagall's book is excellent. And what's the name of that book again? uh, It's Reality is Broken. All right. And speaking of uh, punishments, there's a company out there called Pavlov, you know, from mm-hmm. Pavlov's dog, mm-hmm. that is sending us a test of a uh, of a wristwatch that you wear that you can set up to shock yourself. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> it's a little bit harsh. I don't know if I'm yeah, gonna, yeah, yeah. I would rather the reward. Um, and and there's actually uh, there's websites out there where you can set up rewards mm-hmm. too. Um, and there's so many great tools. So into the tools. You know, there's so many of them, and all of them have um, really different pros or different um, ways that you can use them. It's difficult for me to pick just one. I mean, honestly, the best tool in my toolbox any day of the week is my calendar. Um, One thing I will say about calendars, though, so I use Outlook, you can use Google, anything. But one thing that is a great tool in calendaring is to set up different colors in your calendar for different types of tasks. The color really helps you when you're looking at your calendar, really helps you figure out, oh, I've got a phone call because all phone calls are yellow. All of my client meetings are um, green. All my intakes, which means I have to get a folder out and get ready for an intake, are teal colored. So that helps me strategize on my day when I'm looking at my calendar. So I think that that would be my tool is to use different colors on your calendar. Makes it so much easier to see what you've got to do. Um, And then the frogs. Ah, gosh, I have so many frogs. (laughs) I have so many frogs I need to eat. Um, I think, honestly, my, uh, my biggest frog is that running a company... Uh, and being a single mom with two kids, uh, mine is about relaxation time. Mine is about not working too much because when you own a company, when you're a manager, honestly, the work never gets done, right? There's always more to do, always. So I need to learn how to say stop and I need to take an ample amount of time to rest which gives me enough energy to keep my house running uh, in a little bit more smoother organization and have time for my children and my partner. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cool. Well, Jan, thank you, one, for hosting us tonight, two, for being on on the show. This is... Super valuable. It's it's sort of the basics. It's the crux, but it's it, it's the basics for a reason because it works. It does work. So if people want to find out more about you, where should they head and they and how so can they can they do that. There's two places. One is our website here in Silicon Valley, and just so people know, we work with clients throughout the country. Uh, we Skype, we phone call, we FaceTime. So people who need some help, it they don't have to be here, but they can find us at www.evolibri.com and that's E V as in Victor O L I B as in boy R I dot com evolibri.com and if they're looking for the book uh, the CEO of self uh, an executive functioning workbook it is available on Amazon it's available on pretty much all of the online sites and they can find it there and happy reading 
All right. And it, yeah, it is a workbook. It's something it's you can work book. through. It's not, and you know, and that was, this is my technical writing background. It is a book that actually leads you through exercises to help organize yourself and learn more about how to do these tasks. It's, um, you know, reading theory is all great, but it's difficult for most people to take theory and apply it. So this is very much an applied workbook so that you can actually pick it up, read a chapter and apply it by the end of the week. It's cool. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Zach. Well, thanks for, thanks for joining us. No problem. Take care. Great conversation with dear family friend, Jan Johnson. You can find all the links to the show by going to the productivity show dot com forward slash 51 or the productivity show dot com forward slash executive i learned a great deal in this conversation the term executive functioning the term neurodiversity the best times for flow and the best times for computation how short-term memory is a major factor in being able to switch task not multitask but switch task effectively If you or someone you know struggles to sort and organize actions and thoughts, I'd highly encourage you to take Jan's advice and play to your strengths and scaffold the rest. The scaffolding of a task manager, as simple as it sounds, took me 26 years to find and made a dramatic difference in my life personally. It's the reason I'm recording this right now. So if you, your child, your students don't need to suffer from time loss, aggravation, and anxiety that comes from being wired slightly different than the mainstream. Once again, the book's called The CEO of Self, an Executive Functioning Workbook, and it's ideal for students, parents, teachers, and anybody who wants to be reasonably organized in the digital age. The book and this show are both geared towards helping you plan, do, review, organize, prioritize, eliminate the unimportant, delegate and automate what you can, Focus on your most important task, take care of yourself, find momentum, move towards your ideal, achieve anything, but not everything, enjoy this life, do more, and be better. This week, I'd like to invite you to focus on one thing, the calendar mental walkthrough. Jan mentioned it in the episode, and I think it could really change the way your weeks flow. Every morning, before the daily fires start to ignite, take a look at what you have on deck. Look at your calendar. What meetings do you have? What tasks? What projects do you need to complete before the day ends? Don't just give the calendar a glancing look. Visualize it. See successful outcomes. Notice what you'll need to prepare for. Consider how much time, task, or transportation will take. Then start working. I guarantee that it will lead to a more calm, productive, creative, and satisfying week. If you want to learn two or three more techniques for doing more and being better, join us on the free productivity workshop. I'm excited to be presenting yet again this week. So sign up by going to the productivityshow.com forward slash workshop or texting TPS to the number 38470. Thank you for tuning in and I Look forward to joining you next week.